0: Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine podcast. Welcome to this latest episode of Into Security, the Info Security Magazine podcast.
1: I'm Deputy Editor Dan Raywood. And Michael Hill here as well. I'm the editor, I'm delighted you can join us for this our latest episode in our podcast series. So to kick things off, then we'll run over some of the uh, big news stories of the last week. Um, and I'm going to start with the well developing story which affected Black uh, So that's well Black B A U D Blackboard. Um Now they are one of the largest uh, uh, providers in the world of education, administration, fundraising, and financial management software. Now there were uh, reports that we kind of covered, uh, kind of towards the end of, of last week, um, that the University of York had had come out um, and notified uh, affected as staff and students that some of their personal uh, details may have been compromised as a result of a, a breach that Blackboard uh, suffered. Um, as it kind of turned out, a few more stories that we covered on Invo security. There were kind of several other um, companies, mainly mainly um, non profit and educational companies that were affected. Um, as of kind of today, it looks as if it's progressed further. And, you know, with, there's there's mentions kind of online and then reports that it's 100 plus companies now that have actually been affected as, as part of this breach. So it's definitely a developing story. Um, but yeah, like I say, obviously, so Blackboard looks like they actually suffered a, a ransomware attack back in uh, May, um, and it wasn't until about kind of mid-July that they actually then uh, notified a lot of the companies that may have been uh, impacted. Uh, so as the stories developed, it looked as if so, along with uh, University of York, like I mentioned earlier, other companies in the UK, and North America, plus Human Rights Watch and mental health charity Young Minds have also been affected. That was according to the, to, to the BBC this week Um University uh, College Oxford. Uh, the University of London, Canada's Ambrose University, and the Rhode Island School of Design are also among the higher education institutions impacted. Um, as this week's progressed, it, it seems as if all those institutions have kind of taken on the process of uh, contacting the uh, the, the um, staff and, and students that uh, may have been affected by this breach. Um an interesting one around this story is obviously the fact that, as I mentioned, this, this, this uh, ransomware attack uh, happened around about 20, uh, 20th of May. It wasn't until mid-July that companies were actually told about it. So Blackboard has uh, come in for criticism for its slow response to the incident. Um, Obviously, quite what that's going to mean in terms of kind of a GDPR investigation, we don't know at the moment. But it would be interesting to see what's going on there. Also of interest, the uh, company said in a statement that they have actually paid a ransom to to the attackers. Now, they admitted that the the uh, attackers removed a copy of a subset of data from its self-hosted environment, and it went on to say. As protecting our customers' data is our top priority, we paid the cyber criminals' demand with confirmation that the copy uh, they removed had then been destroyed. Based on the nature of the incident, our research and third-party investigation, we have seen no reason to believe that any data went beyond the cyber criminals in question or that it was uh, used or uh, abused and that it was deleted. And that was kind of the end of of that particular story. Uh, Kind of a worrying story. Obviously, the uh, industry has reacted to it. Kath Goulding, who see nominate, argued that it was worrying that the firm had paid the ransom against general best practice advice, adding that this could encourage future attacks, of course. Obviously, as I mentioned, there's the issue there that comes into play with regards to the delay of notifying companies that may have been affected, or as it turns out, have been affected. It also, again, highlights the the issues around supply chain risks. Now, obviously, Blackboard is a third party that works alongside a lot of education companies and, as mentioned, kind of manages its administration fundraising and financial sides of things so it just to be clear it is actually Blackboard that suffered the the attack but obviously where it's got so many partners and so many companies that it works alongside and shares data with it seems as if now that the actual impact has, has affected possibly well, 100 plus companies and as i said the story is ongoing so it's a it's an interesting one to say the least the ico are looking into it they have been notified so it will be interesting to see how much more this one develops yeah i i like you said it was it's a pretty classic supply
0: chain attack isn't it really because i was just listening to something the other day about the not petcher attacks where you know they obviously you know, ultimately a lot of companies were affected by one company being affected and we've seen other other instances of, it, of impact as well but this is this is an interesting one especially because the targets or should i say the victims in this case are mostly universal Universities, which have probably faced their own challenges lately because they rely pretty heavy on fees, I guess, to, to pay their, their, their way. And of course, I guess a lot of that has gone. But it, it's, yeah, it's not particularly looking good, is it really? Because I think, like you said, there's over 100 or so that could be affected by this. And when I, I did a story, uh, Sheffield Hallam's one of the universities that, that sort of came out and declared, as it were, in a local newspaper. So it, it's, a, it's a tricky one. And I think I didn't realise they, they'd actually paid the ransom until you've just said that. So uh, <laughs> some good news, well, not good news, but some interesting news because uh, that does it's it's a tactic that a lot of businesses would be very questionable about
1: yeah absolutely yeah and and this is still developing i think and i think we're going to kind of see this one develop further for a fair while so yeah we'll keep an eye on it but yeah it's an interesting one
0: it is. And speaking of, of attack stories and things like that, which have been quite recent, obviously there's always a lot of things going on in cybersecurity. And one we've been covering over the last week, as we record, is regards to Garmin. Now, a lot of people probably know Garmin. They they do things like smartwatches. They do things like fitness watches, trackers, things like that. Very sort of big in the sort of the GPS market. Of course, they've also got a lot of details in things like a bit more military, we're, we're led to believe. And um, the concern there is that they actually suffered what they called originally an outage it took a few days to get a bit of detail from it and a lot of uh, reporting was going on across the news wires there of different claims of what was actually happening and um, maybe a quick lesson to be learned is always try and stay ahead of your own news cycle because um, eventually on july 23rd they confirmed that it was a cyber attack that encrypted some of our systems uh, this was actually about six five six days actually including the weekend since the original story of an outage came out and of course the services went down people started noticing that their uh, what they were using was no longer available whether it was, say, it was smart services uh, online services or maybe in something a little bit more kind of level of maybe military use things like that so there's or even uh, aerospace of course which is a, a big part of their business apparently so yeah garmin it's been a bit of a problem really because as well as the online services being interrupted including web, website functions customer support applications and communications they said we immediately began to assess the nature of the tech and start remediation now they said there was no indication of any customer data payment information or anything like that being lost and um, the only damage was to services being taken offline which they were able to restore pretty quickly and it's a pretty admirable way that they were able to actually get this working because what they were able to do wasn't only determine the problem and well apparently keep on top of it in terms of resolving the issue maybe their communications were a little bit slow but what they've actually managed to do is, is keep up to date now in terms of what happened it's all been a little bit kind of hearsayish because we're not completely sure because there's a, not a lot of information coming out from Garmin so what Some of the things we've been, we've been reading about and some of the things we've been keeping up on are, first of all, that it was a ransomware attack. Now, you could say what their words that a cyber attack that encrypted some of our systems, that suggests that's a ransomware attack. You've got to read between the lines a little. But in particular, this was according to um, some research we found from Sentinel-1. They said it was a Variant called Wasted Locker This, in particular has been tracked since about April May so of 2020 so quite a, a sort of a common and uh, quite an up to date variant uh, in particular it targets high value companies Garmin apparently a very high high value target. It's also been described by a few other companies as being quite severe. I've got a quote here from Kaspersky. They said it's a targeted ransomware, which means operators come for selected enterprise instead of every random host they can reach. Now, the other things that are slightly, well, again, no real confirmation from Garmin. First of all, is that Garmin had managed to get hold of the decryption key. But by doing so, again, according to reports, (laughs) this was apparently because they paid a $10 million ransom. It's a bit like, you were saying, Michael, with Blackboard, they apparently, and this is all, all you know no confirmation, they paid their answer in order to get the decryption key and start unlocking all of their, their services. It's It's been commended generally in the way they're able to act quite fast and react to this problem. But if yeah, like you said with Blackboard, if they had to pay a ransom, then we're kind of not really going in the right direction because yeah, a story we're going to come to it a bit later on suggests that things actually could be going in the right direction. But actually, in some ways, with these two stories, it feels like we're not going the right way.
1: mm. It is interesting. I think the reaction to certainly the blackboard one is one of surprise that the ransom has been paid. Like I mentioned earlier, it does go against kind of the general best practice advice. But it does, I mean, lead us quite nicely into a next piece I want to pick up on that's linked to this, but it's kind of going the other way and actually far more promising, which is the fact that No More Ransom Initiative actually celebrated its fourth anniversary this week. Uh, And in doing so, it's reflected on on some of the achievements of the last four years, which have been quite impressive, really. So obviously, according to to one of the founders, which is obviously Europol, the No More uh, Ransom Decryption Tool Repository has registered over 4.2 million visitors from 188 countries in the last four years. And it's also prevented an estimated six hundred and thirty two million pounds, dollars, sorry, from getting into the hands of criminals, which they have a lot of money. So obviously this initiative was set up back in July 2016, which is a collaborative effort between law enforcement and IT uh, security companies to kind of disrupt cyber criminal businesses with ransomware connections. So they created an online portal that informs the public about the dangers of ransomware and helps victims to recover their data without having to pay any ransoms to cyber criminals. So that portal has now added 28 new tools this year. It's now capable of decrypting 140 different types of ransomware infections and that portal is now also available in 36 different languages. So back in July 2016 it started obviously with Europol, like I mentioned, the Dutch National Police, McAfee and and Kaspersky has now expanded to having 163 partners from all over the world. Just a quick comment here that we got from a spokesperson at Kaspersky. The success of No More Ransom Initiative is a shared success, one that cannot be achieved by law enforcement or private industry alone. By joining forces, we enhance our ability to take on the criminals and make it harder for them to harm people, businesses and critical infrastructure. What ransomware has taught us for sure is that prevention is no longer better than a cure. Internet users need to avoid becoming a victim in the first place. Many relevant prevention tips are available on the No More Ransom website. If you do become a victim, it is important not to pay the ransom and to report your infection to the police. So, quite a contrast to kind of the first two stories mm. that we've heard there. I personally think it's just very positive. I think everyone involved in No More Ransom have done great work over the last four years. They're very well known for it. And it is a great initiative and it's a great effort to kind of, you know, to, to, to fight ransomware and give, give companies and people a means to decrypt their data without having to pay a ransom. But yeah, it is quite a juxtaposition compared to the first two stories that we kind of reflected on there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we've like like you said, you know, six hundred plus million is, has, you know, has not been paid, which is great because it, it it's, it's a real problem for businesses. And I, you know, I do remember you know it's been working in post security since this has launched, and it, it, it's great that it is still going because my um, fear originally that it would be uh, you know washed away like several other initiatives can be, and sometimes they don't really stick around. But it's, it's fantastic, and I know some of the people involved, like you mentioned, the companies like Kaspersky and McAfee and some others, and it's great that this has been kept going. It, it's not been left to kind of wither away, and the support is still there and i think it's testament to people who, who are involved to actually just show those uh, you know those those sort of figures that have come out of it well just for our last of the four regular stories for this episode then and we're actually going to go back uh, a week couple of weeks now actually to a report which came out from the intelligence and security committee of the uk government this one was actually slightly pre-prepared now i have to big thanks to fire actually i went to a brief as we record we did briefing with them this morning which was pushed back a week because of this actually so it was last week the report came out and it it came out with no no well plenty of controversy because they not only they name russia as a highly capable cyber actor by the isc intelligence security committee as i said but of course this came just after the new head of the isc was announced julian lewis replacing different people who had moved around with some controversy around government that's a different issue i'm sure you can read about that but we'll focus here on the the um, on the report, I mean, it, it's a fantastic report and really worth sort of getting some time to actually read it. And we, we did cover it on Info Security, and there was so much to pick out of it that I struggled to keep the story without going it uh, particularly long. But I mean, the, the report claims that the UK is one of Russia's top Western intelligence targets. This, of course, can follow some some various incidents back and forth, at least including the 2018 Salisbury poisonings, which were attributed to Russian agents by the then Prime Minister Theresa May, but also the UK uh, this ISC had said that a fusion between state, business, and serious and organized crime has made Russia an all-encompassing security threat. It says that Russia employs organized crime groups that its cyber skills and carries out malicious cyber activity in order to assert itself aggressively, with you know, undertaking cyber pre-positioning on the other country's national infrastructure. It's really aggressive. It's a very kind of forthright and a very I mean, attribution has always been a tricky one, but a very forthright and a very determined sort of tone they take in this report. And it says that they really kind of also very very clear on the way the UK wasn't maybe prepared so much for example it says that it was the Democratic National Committee email breach back in 2016, they said the government did not take action to protect the UK's process as a result of that and it was slow to recognise the existence of the threat of democratic influence. Now what's interesting about democratic influence of course is in the UK we use paper based voting, they can't influence electronic voting, we don't have them but of course there is accusations of being involved with social media and interference Shall should we say of the way that people are being uh, influenced to vote, because we saw that with the Brexit vote of 2016. And also we've seen, you know, social media companies be challenged in the last week and especially in in recent months to maybe be monitoring better about the way sort of content they're hosting now in terms of the report then also declared that the official secrets act is not fit for purpose and it should lead to new legislation to tackle foreign spies i'll read some of the quotes it said we need a continuing international consensus against russian aggressive action and effective constraint of nefarious russian activities in the future will rely on making sure that the price russians pay for such interference is sufficiently high um, the West is strongest when it acts collectively, and the UK has shown it can lead the international response. It's a tricky one when it comes to attribution, because you're kind of pointing the finger. And I remember when I think it was the UK government who came out and said they accused uh, North Korea of being behind the WannaCry attacks. And it's generally understood that Russia was behind the NotPetya attacks uh, back in 2017. But I do just it's a funny one to know where this goes and it possibly we know some russian businesses that you know are absolutely legitimate and everything but it, it's a tricky one to sort of say yeah you know, this is what this achieves but I, at the same time, I suppose if they say nothing, then, you know, you accuse of pandering and all that kind of thing. So yeah, I don't think we're going to Russia anytime soon, Michael. Yeah,
1: it is a tricky one when it comes to attribution. I mean, you know, it, some of the people that I've spoken to recently have kind of said that, you know, a lot of these, these attacks are quite sophisticated and they actually use techniques to kind of mask where they're coming from anyway. And when researchers look into to try and track the origin of where they could be coming from, it is it, quite easy for these kind of nation states to kind of leave breadcrumbs that, you know, that kind of throw investigators off anyway. So it is a tough one, but it was a really interesting report that came out. So definitely uh, take a look at it if you've, if you've got the time. Okay, we're just moving on then for the next few minutes. We're actually going to bring to you a bit of research that we carried out here at InfoSecurity Magazine. Dan, I'll let you introduce it as it was very much your, your great idea. So just uh, tell us a bit about what, what we've done. Yeah, sure. It was it was
0: all kind of spun from an idea of a, of a story we did, uh, I think it was uh, back in July or certainly so earlier in July, which got some research from Digital Shadows, because, you know, then they're a British, uh, well, not much of a startup anymore, they've been for quite some time now, uh, a British company where they're very much tracking uh, act- activity in the dark web and cyber criminal underground. They give you a lot of information, you know, about what people are saying about your business and, and all the things. I'm sure they're doing a lot more than that since um, since all that. But, yeah, they do some really, really great research around threats and stuff like that. And the the piece of research they did before said there'd been a 300% increase in stolen credentials with more than 15 billion credentials in circulation. And these include credentials with bank accounts, social media, video streaming services. And of these, 5 billion were assessed to be unique, as in they've not been advertised more than once on criminal forums. So, I kind of thought from this. I thought, well, first of all, you know, we talk a lot about things like credential stuffing, where uh, and brute force attacks using all these yeah you know, big data sets of people's credentials, and they you know they use it against against web services and you know try it over and over again. Of course, eventually you'll get in, and because people don't change their password, so we did a bit of original research. I thought let's ask the questions of our audience that I guess I'm interested to know about. So, Michael, let's do the first the first poll we did on the 23rd, which, if I remember rightly, was last Friday. I think it went up. No, sorry, last Thursday. It started last Thursday finished um on friday and we asked the question how many new accounts have you created in lockdown i'll, I'll give you the reason why i asked this one is because um as we were sort of I've obviously been in lockdown now for some four months now i personally have created more accounts i think i'm in the first option which was zero to ten but the example i cited is that i was looking to get my hair cut because it was getting four months and it's getting quite ridiculous and one place i found locally uh on me creating an online account and i'm like why do I need to do that just to get my hair cut? You know, I'm fair enough if I'm signing up to pay tax or have a bank account, but why just to get a haircut? I thought that's a bit excessive. So the question we asked: How many new accounts have you created in lockdown? Do you want to run through the results there, one, Michael?
1: Yeah, sure. So we got 120 responses on that one. So one, two, zero. Uh, so 80% was the top answer, which were in the bracket of uh, zero to ten. Next top answer: 12.5% in the bracket of ten to 30 new accounts, with only 7.5% going for more than 30. So vast majority there, kind of opting for the uh, zero to ten category, which I found quite surprising. The point that you made there Dan is actually really interesting that you know you just went to get your hair cut or looking to get your hair cut and you had to set up an account I wonder whether that kind of zero to ten whether people are taking that sort of thing into account but yeah certainly an interesting bit of research to do and even if zero to ten is the most common answer 80 percent that's still a lot of new accounts to make in what through what we what six months I guess it is so it's still you know a fair a fair number I would say.
0: I think also, yeah, yeah, we're free. I think it's officially we we most people started working from home March, but I guess some were already doing it from February. So yeah, we're kind of pushing towards five months now, anyway, at least. Uh, I think the other thing to consider is that a lot of people before lockdown would have thought nothing about walking to the local supermarket or driving to the local supermarket and doing the shopping. When we were discouraged from leaving the house for you know more than an hour a day, people would have done more online shopping. which means signing up to these these you know the supermarkets now, that. so that's where I was thinking with that. So yeah, even though maybe zero to ten, like you said, it's not a lot. It is a lot of new accounts and that led to the second question which we ran on this one up friday night actually so we caught a lot of the US, sort of us traffic through uh through friday and hopefully some of the people looking at these were on, on twitter by the way on our twitter account at info security mag so this is a bit of a, more of a standard security question really and we asked do you create a unique password for each new account you set up and i don't know if you, if you want to look at the results for that one michael
1: yeah, sure. So we had options of yes and no for that one, quite straightforward. Top answer was yes, and that was 69.7%, with obviously 303 going for no. So literally just under 70% saying that they do create a unique password for each account they set up. And that was uh, that was from 297 uh, votes, just under 300. So 70% of 300 saying yes, they do uh, use unique password for each new account set up. That's quite promising. Yeah, I was quite happy with the numbers, actually. Now, 297,
0: which is really, really good, especially because we ran it through the evening on Friday. So we might have caught a lot more people who, uh, you know, we've got quite a lot of followers on Info security. So, uh, it, it, you know, it could have caught a lot more people who who don't normally follow cybersecurity, which is great. I'm not surprised that, obviously, the majority were yes. But I was a little surprised it wasn't, you know, up in the 80s and 90s. And some of the comments we got on this on this tweet, which, again, are all, all still live on our, uh, our Twitter feed. You can go and find them if you're prepared to scroll down a bit. Um, you can see some of the comments there saying that surprised by the amount of no's but nicely a dose of reality i think yeah i think then the third one which kind of led me to this was to follow on from some from research i did with digital shadows a number of years ago about digital footprint i thought if we go back to that first poll about how many accounts have we created in lockdown majority of course there were not to 10 i thought then how many actually are those how big is our digital footprint now and as a result, yeah, the, the third question, which went up uh, Monday night, I think it was actually we, we launched this say as record. And we asked, do you actively delete online accounts for services you no longer need? And uh, yeah, the results of this one were pretty interesting, Michael, weren't they?
1: Yeah, pretty tight. So obviously, we again, we had uh, yes or no, quite straightforward options. Yes was 50.3% with no 597 So. Not much in that one at all, and that's interesting. Then there, you make the point about digital footprint and you know old accounts which are easily forgotten about, I guess. But yeah, it's a surprise. That's the one I'm most surprised by actually, and um, yeah, that it was actually that tight.
0: It was like I said. I did some research a number of years ago with digital shadows because I said do a bit of a survey on me. And what's interesting is they found things like a local uh, local community forum I was on, which was leaking data all over the place. And I found, oh my god, it was unbelievable. I also things like it led me to pull my Friends Reunited account. Anyone who's got, certainly was on the internet in the early 2000s, certainly working in the early 2000s, uh, will remember Friends Reunited. Of course, There was there's a great story there about its various being sold back and forth between different providers. But that was another one which seemed to have sort of had so much information and what we call ops. on on me as a person you know all over across the schools i went to now of course a lot of that is on my linkedin but yeah details about you know people i'm connected with and stuff like that so that's why i thought that's an interesting one so creating these new accounts let's say shop uh, say online shopping we're probably still using them but in a year's time fingers crossed and touching wood you know if everything's back to normal will you still use those those uh online shopping you know, supermarkets for example will you be going back to doing it in person so that's just an interesting one that it came up yeah 49.7 do not actively delete online accounts for services they no longer yeah. need and i've heard people say like you know the password manager's got like 500 files 500 passwords and i'm like how many of those accounts are you regularly using so for me it was just a bit of surprise
1: well that's a great point you made there with the online shopping dan i think obviously whatever happens going forward they'll still be used to a degree but if you think back to to when you know getting an online shopping delivery was was kind of you know nile impossible i'd assume a lot of people would have then set up new accounts with perhaps supermarkets that they didn't have accounts with so oh you know Tesco's is fully booked, I'm going to try Sainsbury's, I'm going to try, you know, uh, Waitrose might even get, you know, who's desperate to go, you know, Marks and Spencers, I guess, if you can, you know. People aren't going to... Use all of those accounts going forward. They may revert back to their standard supermarket. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm glad we did that research, and uh, yeah, we'll look to do some do some more of those, and we'll look to kind of uh, put those findings into a piece uh, for the website very soon as well. But we better look to wrap things up shortly. So we'll just quickly run over a few of the things that we're going, we're working on now, and we'll be working on for the next couple of weeks. So obviously, around about this time of year is when we're normally getting ready to meet up in Vegas for obviously Black Hat, which is taking place uh next week obviously virtually now this year obviously the uh, physical event was cancelled some months ago and uh, the company announced that it's going to be uh, virtual for a few days which is I guess better than nothing but obviously is what it is we will be looking to cover as much content from that virtual event as we can I know they've announced a couple of good keynote speakers so d- uh, do keep an eye out for some of the content and news coming up on the website from Black Hat 2020 virtual event to so keep you uh posted with the updates from from that
0: yeah yeah it's a shame obviously it's not happening and as are many other conferences but um they, i looked through the agenda yes they've speakers not only have they got you know sort of 10 12 sessions running at any one time so there's plenty of things to look at but of course it's it's good that it's yeah still such a popular conference and just a couple of other things of course to look out for we're currently working on our q3 issue that should be coming out uh, when would that come out michael about mid-august something. mid to late august will be the distribution date for that great So, time you are listening to the next episode of this you hopefully would have seen that and also just to flag that our next online summit is at the end of september the 22nd 23rd and this of course is our twice annual uh, online event where we across two days we deliver something like i think it's 14 sessions there's a b- whole bunch of, of cpu credits to be collected we're covering all sorts of sessions this year including covid19 the impact of that and i think we're covering cyber insurance and i know we're covering some of the ones uh, that i'm talking about what about yourself
1: michael what, which ones are you doing uh yes yeah, so i've got a great session that's kicking off day two which is kind of looking at the modern role of the of the CISO and what it means to be a modern CISO and kind of lead the company's security strategy I guess but also some really great uh, sessions lined up on future-proofing authentication as well so looking at you know kind of new more modern methods authentication so yeah really excited we're going to have some great point counterpoint sessions as well where we get two kind of conflicting opinions on the same uh, subject and we discuss those so yeah do check out the uh, website where you can see uh, the full list of the sessions uh, the agenda there and you can also see who's going to Going to be due to to speak. So yeah, get yourself registered for that event, and we look forward to you joining us for that one if you can. Again, that's that's taking place on the twenty second and twenty third of September. So quite a few weeks away now, but no harm in getting registered nice and early and booking your place. But yeah, without further ado, we'll say a big thank you to listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will end it there. Thank you for listening to Into Security, the Info Security Magazine podcast. You can find out more information on our news, articles and events at infosecuritymagazine.com.